I, so I was going to tell you a little bit about myself. This is a good lead-in. I grew up in the UP, and my dad, yeah, Uper in here? No, you just like it. All right. Okay, it's cool. No one wants to live there. They just like to visit. Uh, and my dad was the head fisheries biologist for 35 years, and so I lived on the water. I Seriously, I fished all the time. And so I just want to leave it out there for you to make your own decision as to whose fault it was that we don't catch fish. I think I'm good, but a little bit more about me. I am tra um, training, studying over at GRTS, and I'm in the, kind of the final stretch. I've got three semesters left. Uh, actually, that felt like an eternity in undergrad. Um, feels a little like it's coming right around the corner now for me. And I'm getting my master's in Christian formation. Uh, another thing about me is that I have a beautiful, awesome wife named Shayla, and I have two beautiful boys. Reed is four. He'll be four in July. And Finnegan is, uh, he just turned one. So we had to push back the birthday party two weekends, so I just kind of came from that, having a big party, tons of cake, and uh, everybody's uh, fast asleep at Grandma and Grandpa's now. So I'm going to be teaching from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, if you want to flip there. It's a very familiar passage. I want to read it to you. Um, let me uh, open us up in prayer. Lord, you promise that your word can cut straight to our hearts. Just by hearing your words, our life can be changed. Our lives can be changed. We won't feel ripped off tonight if that doesn't happen in a massive way, but Lord, we do ask for it because we know you can. So Lord, I leave that to you. Do that in our hearts, in my heart, in the hearts of Crossroads tonight. Amen. Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 9. Uh, I almost missed it. You can stand if you're able for the reading of God's words. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I have commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to obey them, that it may go well for you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk about them when you sit in your house, and when you walk along the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. You can take a seat. About the passage itself, quick, just looking at verses 1 through 9, something worth noting is that the real point of this whole passage is sandwiched in between two sections of Scripture that I think get us hung up, and I'm just going to throw them out there and we'll flesh it out as we go. Verses 1 through 3, 
you hear, obey God, obey God, obey God, and it'll go well for you. And then on the bottom end of our passage, verses seven through nine, you hear, so do this, do this, do this, put them on your doorstep, teach them to your kids, talk about them when you rise and when you go to bed. I think for a lot of Christians, and I'm not gonna go on a tangent here, but I think we feel the weight of that. But what Moses does in the plains of Moab, what we wanna talk about tonight, what I, I really feel excited about talking about is that sandwiched in between those two weighty, do this, obey, put it on your doorsteps and it'll go well for you, is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God. I want to sit in that space. So, the context, how did we get here? Go with me from Egypt to the plains of Moab. The plains of Moab is this place where Israel's been brought out of the desert. God is faithful to a sinful, broken people. And before they cross the Jordan River into Canaan, into the promised land, Moses hits the brakes like a good leader should. They pause, and we get the title of our book tonight. He gives the retelling of the law, the second telling of the law, Deuteronomy. We got here, if we go way back to Egypt, a slave nation is brought out of Egypt, and we know the story in an unprecedented way. God slaps every god of Egypt in the face with all the plagues, and he tells them, don't pray to a sun god, don't pray to a god of the harvest. He crushes all of it. Every plague, he tells Egypt, your gods aren't real. I'm the real god. And Israel just sits and watches while their god is elevated, and then they're led out of Egypt. They march out of Egypt singing the praises of their god, while every family in Egypt buries their oldest child. The mic drop, right? I'm the one true God. These are my people. And then we get kind of a, a, to a confusing place. They're brought out of slavery into the wilderness. God does that incredible parting of the Red Sea thing. That's pretty unique, pretty powerful. And then it gets interesting. See, when I read this, I, I, I look at God as the main character in this whole narrative, right? Israel's just kind of hanging on for the ride and letting God blow their mind. The first time they really step into the narrative as a significant character, what are they doing? They're sinning, they're groaning, they're mumbling, right? They get hungry. And I don't want to under, underplay that. They get really hungry. But what do they do? Where's the sin in that? They, they want to go back to Egypt. They want to take matters into their own hands. And they say, let's go back to the meat pots, meat pots in Egypt. If I ever say Egypt for Israel or Israel for Egypt, hopefully you get the point. I mess those up all the time. But Israel wants to go back to Egypt. Next, they get thirsty. They get really thirsty, and they, they're ready to stone Moses because they doubt the presence of God with them. And so Moses strikes the rock, and God gives them water. Again, powerful examples of God's love for Israel, his mercy on Israel, and his power, his oneness. 
And then there's the golden calf thing, right? So Israel gets impatient because Moses is up on Mount Sinai getting the law. And God's presence is on the mountain. And they, they start to think, I don't know if Moses is coming back. So they do what the Egyptians do. I'll just move on to another God. They spent so much time in Egypt that it was instinct for them to just move on. So they tell Aaron, make us something to worship. We got to get to the promised land. We need, to, we need somebody to lead us there, so make us a new God. After all of that, we get to the plains of Moab. How do we get here? How does Israel get out of this? You see, there's... There's a tension in our passage. There's a tension in the narrative of Deuteronomy, the whole book. And, and especially in chapter 6, the tension is that Israel is called to obey, but they can't do it. They're called to love God, but they can't do it. And the reason this is frustrating for us, and the reason why it's challenging in our passage is because they have every reason to love God, don't they? They have every reason to trust God. Look at all he's done for them. But before we unpack that, we got to understand two things. We got to know God's intention for obedience. And in order to understand God's intention from the beginning with Adam and Eve for obedience, we've got to look at two words in the Hebrew. We've got to look at obedience and heart. So just really quick. There is no word in the Hebrew language for obey. It's kind of mixed in with the word hear. So you see in your, your text tonight, verse 4, hear, O Israel. That word is shema. Shema means hearing with the inevitable intent to obey. Hearing with the inevitable intent to obey. It's a given that if you hear God speak, you're going to do it. I, I spent seven years in camp ministry. How many camp counselors or people who have done camp before in here? A few, a few. So I th the, biggest, the, like the biggest activity at camp was the blob. Any of you go on the blob? And I looked forward to the blob when I was at camp, before I was a camp counselor. I mean, I'm talking when I was a kid our church van would pull up into the parking lot and my friends and I would be like clamoring over each other and scanning the terrain. All these buses, all these vans coming in, all these youth groups from different churches pouring out and their leaders are coming out too. What do you need to have a great experience on the blob? You need the biggest person you can find. So this might have been the most insensitive thing I've done in my life, but... Picture freshman in high school, little old me and a bunch of my immature buddies. We come tumbling out of the church van and we are beelining it to church leaders. Hey man, I gotta get your contact info. Um, what's your name, date of birth? Okay, when are you gonna be at the blob? <laughs> we needed to have the best experience possible on the blob because the bigger the guy is, the higher you go, right? I think obedience was always meant to be like the blob in God's original design for the world. When God's, this is what I mean, when God's commands come crashing down on our heart, the response without a doubt should be what? 
we're catapulted into faithful, loving activity. Does that make sense? That's what Shema means. When God's commands come crashing down on your heart, you can't help but burst into loving obedience to him. We need to understand that as we keep going. We also need to understand the heart. The heart in the Hebrew language or in the ancient Near East is understood as the place where intellect and emotion are seated. So, one, two, three, row three, faithful. So, Pastor Brian says he always sits in the third row, and I'm going to use you as just an illustration here quick. If I'm Pastor Brian's heart, okay, I, I control where the intellect and the emotion go. I tell them what to think and what's worth thinking about, and I tell his emotion what's worth getting excited about. The heart is mission control to, in the Hebrew language. This is what the point was. And so... Pastor Brian's intellect is my historical theology professor, and you're brilliant. You're brilliant, man. And his emotion is, no, let's just say my, my four-year-old, right? You have a great heart. I'm your heart, right? So I'm going to direct these two. I'm going to tell the mind what's worth thinking about, and I'm going to tell him, go, give me all the information I can about this thing that I'm fixed on, to defend that, I, that it's worth loving. And then I go and tell the emotion, once I've fixated on something, go and pour everything we have into that thing. The heart does three things. It trusts, and I'm stealing a little bit of this, a little bit of this from Tim Keller. It trusts, it treasures, and it meditates. This is what a heart does. It trusts, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust the Lord your God with all of your heart. It treasures. Jesus says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And it meditates. Psalm 19, 14. Let the, of my heart, let the meditations of my heart, right, be pleasing to you, O God. So if our heart trusts treasures and meditates it makes sense the bible tells us this in the ancient near east culture the hebrew language says it's the seat of the intellect and the emotion it's the decision maker like i said it's mission control so i think i explained that enough but we the battle for our love starts in the heart and the heart directs everything else that we think and do and feel So, going back to our narrative and the tension, I think we can feel the same tension in our lives. This, this frustration that I just, I want to love God. I, I think, no, I think I love God. Yeah, I love God. But our lives don't always match up. Can you relate to that with me? We want to love God, but we don't always get it right. Israel's failure is just like our frustrations. I wonder if we could say that we're just as unfaithful and just as obedient as Israel, even though 
if we believe in Jesus, our hearts have been circumcised. They've been changed. We have a new heart. Is the tension still there? Is the same tension in our story or in Israel's story still in ours? I think it is. Paul says in Romans 7.15, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. And what I hate, I do. And what I, what I hate, I do. All it took for Israel to consider going back into slavery was hunger. I wonder, have you or I ever hungered for something so much that we consider bondage to something over obedience to God? Maybe we hunger for significance so we make ourselves a slave to work. Or we hunger for love so we make ourselves a slave to performance or to other people's uh, acceptance or to something like pornography that, that can make us feel that love. We hunger just like Israel. All it took for Israel to attempt to murder Moses at Massa was thirst. I wonder, have you ever, have you or I ever been so thirsty for something that we would consider harm to another person over trusting obedience to God? Maybe we thirst for power so we shout our spouse out of the room if they challenge our better judgment. Or we thirst for rest so we viciously guard our personal space in downtime while our family needs are left on the back burner. Or our friend is battling cancer and just needs a call or our city needs prayer. All it took was a few days of dark clouds, a little thunder and lightning, and no return of Moses for Israel to move on to another, another God to worship and lead them to the promised land. I wonder... Have you or I ever been so anxious to get somewhere in the future that we chose to pick a new way forward that didn't require waiting on God's faithfulness? Maybe we're anxious about school or job promotion or change or the answer to a prayer for a loved one or maybe a new ministry opportunity. We are just as impatient and unloyal as Israel. Do you feel the tension in your story? Again, Tim Keller talks about, uh, he's, he's, he teaches on the end of the book that we're in tonight, Deuteronomy chapter 30. So we're towards the beginning of the book, but let's look ahead just for a second to uh, uh, chapter 30. And he says, and he, actually, you don't have to go there, but this is what he says about the, the narrative of Deuteronomy. He says, Moses is kind of like a motivational speaker. Have you ever thought of Moses like that? I, I haven't. Um, but you look at it, he says, do this, do this, do this, and it'll go well for you. And then here's how to do it. It sounds like five easy steps to a better life, your best life now, whatever. And Keller says, Americans love five steps to a better life. Americans love motivational speakers. Of course, Moses ruins it at the end of this book. He goes from motivational speaker to Debbie Downer in chapter 30. That's my translation of Keller's words. Um, 
He says in the end, let me just get the tension completely clarified. You can't obey God. You can't. You can't love God. It's impossible. Imagine if any of you are in management, leadership, maybe you own your own business, and you pay top dollar for a, like, a motivational speaker to come in and pump up your staff to be more productive. And they spend two days just amping everybody up, and they are so ready to go and just take over the world. And then at the end of the last morning, his last words are, oh, you know what, guys? I gotta be real with you. I've never actually seen anybody do this. In fact, you're not gonna do this. I'm wasting my breath and your money. You'd probably be pretty furious. Keller says that while Moses makes a terrible motivational speaker, he makes an incredible case for the foundation of a gospel presentation. It is so important, Crossroads, for us to get that we can't love God apart from God. We can't obey God by willing it, by looking into ourselves, by looking into the world to find some sort of manufactured love or manufactured strength. God wants us to get this. This is why I think God and Satan are both in the business of exposing our hearts. Yeah, I think God and Satan are in the same business. Satan wants to expose our hearts to accuse and condemn us as soon as he gets the chance to lure our hearts into trusting, treasuring, and fixating on things other than God, which inevitably leads to sin. This is why the desert is such a dangerous place. But then why does God lead his children into the desert? He did it to Israel, he did it to Jesus, and he does it to us. We know that God doesn't tempt us, so why does he expose us? He tells Israel why. In Deuteronomy 8.2, you can turn there if you'd like. I'll read it to you, though. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. God exposes our hearts to show us our hearts, to show us that we won't keep his commands. Satan shows us our hearts by getting us to sin, and by then, there's just more blood on our ledger. God says, I don't cause you to sin or hope for you to sin. No, I just bring you low, taking away everything from you but myself, and your hearts do the rest. Always longing for someone or something else, I need you to see this, Israel. He needs us to see this, Crossroads. But why? If God knows that our hearts are prone to wander, like the old hymn says, never satisfied in him as they should be, why does he feel we have to see it too? Can't he just fix it? He answers this as well in the next verse, Deuteronomy 3. 
He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. This is why he brings us low. This is why he exposes our hearts, because he loves us too much to let us believe in anything else. Out of love for us, God shows us our need for him. He goes to extreme measures to make sure that we understand our need for him. And this is why he calls us to turn our attention and our affections, our intellect and our emotions to him. His power, his provision, his mercy and his love. He is the only one in life, the only thing in life that will ever satisfy us. Because it's just like that famous John Piper quote, right? God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. Jesus shows us what a heart like this looks like. He shows us a way through the tension. Our hearts are new if we put our hope in Jesus Christ, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But Jesus gives us a way through the tension in our storyline, in our narrative. Jesus shows us in his time in the desert what we lost in the garden. A heart satisfied in God. And a heart satisfied in God translates into a true son loving his father back, catapulted into obedience the second his father calls. It wasn't easy for Jesus, but he did it perfectly. And it wasn't easy, it's not easy for us. But if we, live, if we believe in him, what do we have? When you put your hope in Jesus Christ, when you believe in him, you're given a new heart, but you're, you're given something else. His Holy Spirit, the spirit of Jesus who got it right, lives in you. Not so that you can get it right, but so that you can be free. You don't have to carry the pressure. Remember, we're sandwiched in this passage between do's and don'ts and get it right in one, two, three steps. You're free from that in Christ. Jesus is our way through the tension. The cross frees us from guilt. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Easter gives us new life in Christ. Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Jesus is. I think Will said it. God is so cool. Seated at the right hand of God. Seek the things that are above, not the things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When he appears, if this doesn't ease the tension, crossroads, I don't know what will. When Christ appears, you also will appear with him in what? Glory. You're going to be everything you're striving to be when Jesus finally returns. So put your hope in him. Rest in him. Because we have his spirit, now the spirit turns our hearts back to Jesus, off of ourselves, off of the world, off of other idols, back to him. 
The Spirit dwells in our hearts where the problem lies, settles in and says to us day after day after day, I'll guide you home. I'll guide you to the finish line. Let me direct your affections. Let me direct your attention. Let me call the shots. Because we need to remember God in every moment, and the Holy Spirit always points back to Jesus. So, we cooperate with the Holy Spirit when we remember. And this is why I think Moses points us back, points Israel back to God. This is why I think the most important two verses in this entire passage are four and five. Moses is cooperating with the Holy Spirit and directing the hearts of God's children back to him. This is why the plains of Moab is such a great place. It's here that Moses reminds the people of God. Do you have a Moses in your life? Are you being a Moses to those who are within your scope of influence, your family members, your friends, your coworkers? You don't have to go overseas. It's a wonderful thing, but you don't have to go overseas to breathe life into people, to, to be an evangelist, to, to reflect the love of God and change the world through Christ. I want to cooperate with the Holy Spirit tonight. So I'm going to read you the law. I'm not going to read you the law. I'm going to read you Psalm 103. I thought that would be funny. I tried. <laughs> Dang. All right. Brandon's going to grade me down on my eval this semester. I want to read you Psalm 103 as the worship team comes back if they're here. I'm going to read Psalm 103, but I don't want us to slip into like this moralistic or legalistic view and try to go out and like do something incredible. You have no role to play in remembering other than to remember. Just lean in as I read this and let your hearts be turned by the Holy Spirit the spirit of the living God, back to God. That's all you need to do right now. Can you do that? It's not five easy, five easy steps, but uh, I think we can pull it off. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field. For the wind passes over it and it's gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him 
and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord. Oh, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul.